0: Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Mason Wilder, a Senior Research Specialist at the ACFE, and today I'm joined by Brian Fox.
1: Hey, thank you, Mason. Um, Just to give my background, I'm a, a CPA. I spent my early years working in audit for Ernst & Young and then went to PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I worked in mergers and acquisitions and spent some time in auditing and then uh, ended up going back to business school and starting Confirmation.com uh, right at 20 years ago.
0: All right. And today we're going to be talking about the wire card fraud scandal that has been very prevalent in the news recently. Uh, I wrote a brief article on the, just kind of summarizing the scandal for the Fraud Examiner newsletter. So all our members can go read that article uh, at the fraud examiner archives or in your email inbox, but we'll I'll give a brief brief summary of the kind of who, what, where, and when of this scandal and then Brian and I are gonna go a little more in depth and and Brian, being the expert, is going to kind of talk about the audit side of things that happened here and ways that auditors can avoid becoming involved in some kind of scandal like this or things that companies should be doing to avoid this happening. So Wirecard is a financial tech firm based in Germany that uh, specializes in payment processing So that's, you know, whenever people are making online payments and and things, they have to hire a company that that processes those payments and Wirecard started out in 1999 and managed to grow into a really big international firm with almost 6,000 employees in 26 different countries and a valuation of almost 27 billion by late 2018 and everything was looking really good for them getting lots of investment and you know operations all over the world uh, until there was a financial times story in early 2019 and then another financial times in october 2019 kind of reignited the scandal and ultimately in june 2020 uh, Wirecard's regular audit or auditor, audit firm, EY, refused to sign off on Wirecard's 2019 books, saying that they could also not verify the existence of that $2 billion. And that's when it really blew everything open. The CEO of Wirecard, Marcus Braun, ended up resigning, uh, and he was later arrested. Authorities in Germany and Austria raided Wirecard offices. Uh, there were some other executives charged, and the stock absolutely tanked and lost more than ninety percent of its value. And they had to declare themselves insolvent. Um, at least the the German headquarters, if I'm not mistaken. So. That's kind of the overview of, of this scandal. Getting into the, the specifics of some of these arrangements, I mean, this at the heart of it, this is about third parties that Wirecard used. And so uh, the reason that they've given in response to some of these allegations and as part of these investigations is that they partnered with third parties in some jurisdictions where they did not have the necessary licensing to conduct these payment processing operations and so as many uh, compliance folks or in in lots of other different kind of disciplines amongst our membership will know your risk goes up when you're involving third parties especially depending on the jurisdiction some jurisdictions are are higher risk than others for third parties but so wirecard gets all these agreement with these third party payment processing companies in jurisdictions all over the place and then rather than having a traditional arrangement where Wirecard refers business to this third party and then basically takes a commission of that as a referral fee that that third party pays to Wirecard. For some reason, this arrangement was set up to where all that money went into not an account controlled by Wirecard, but a trustee account. Uh, Brian, is do you think it'd be worth Kind of explaining what a trustee account is and and how those might be involved in a legitimate business arrangement.
1: Sure, yeah, you know, the the trustee arrangement is a pretty typical type of, of business arrangement, and you know I think as the auditors as the regulators have started to 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 peel back the layers of this particular fraud. Uh, what they're seeing is that really this trustee relationship uh, in in utilizing third parties in foreign jurisdictions is, is really just a cover story. Uh, it's a, As I think as they've begun to look at it, what they're seeing now is that a lot of these third parties were really just shell companies set up by Wirecard or previous employees at, at Wirecard, and that as they actually are going and investigating some of these. And really, that was, I think, how the Financial Times reporter, the investigative reporter uncovered this, was he actually went and looked at the facilities, looked at the offices of some of these supposed third parties that they were dealing with, and it turned out to be residential homes or manufacturing plants that had nothing to do with the payments world and the payment space or fintech. And so that was where I think the early suspicions came in. And I think is as we continue to to go through time, more and more of the you know, relationships will probably be shown to be shell organizations that were never legitimate organizations in the first place.
0: Right, and uh, to the specifics involving those some of those kind of shell companies that reporter re- went went to one in the Philippines that was named Conepay International. And it, he showed up at the address, and it was a residence housing a retired seaman and his 12-member extended family. And then there were two other third-party payment processing companies, Centurion Online Payment International and PayEasy. They were both at the same address, which was shared with a tour company that just had a bunch of tour buses on the lot. And they looked at public records and saw that the tour company and one of the payment companies were registered and owned by a former Wirecard Asia Pacific executive and his wife. So that certainly added to the speculation that these are not legitimate companies and therefore the volume of business that they were reporting was probably not legitimate either.
1: Sure. And, and, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening and the reason some of these fraudsters get kind of caught in this fraud cycle is because, you know, in the, in the sense of a public company, they have earnings reports and they want to show continued good news and growth. And certainly that was what it appears Wirecard was trying to do. They had recently been put onto the the German DAX 30. Uh, which is the you know, their ver- Germany's version of the Dow Jones, so it was very prestigious. They had actually just replaced Commerce Bank on that DAX uh, 30. They were, I think, the first fintech company to be listed in the DAX 30, and they wanted to, to show continuous earnings. And in this case, what I've seen historically is that fraudsters, they, they think that first year that they just need an extra penny or two on the earnings per share to make sure they hit the earnings estimates and so they book revenue just enough revenue to hit that maybe that extra penny or half a penny that they need to inflate revenue by offsetting journal entry to cash in this case maybe or receivables in other cases and they think they'll catch up the next year and yet the expectations grow and so the mess grows and so the fraud grows and after a period of time you end up with what turns out to be a, a very material fraud on the balance sheet and income statement, whereas initially it may not have been a material amount as it relates to what an auditor looks at when we think of materiality. But there's other definitions of materiality. When I was auditing, we had a materiality threshold that maybe we we didn't audit below a certain dollar threshold. Uh, I know in, in the case of HealthSouth's fraud, for example, in the U.S., that the auditors in that case, they did not uh, confirm or verify any bank account balances below $10 million because that was considered immaterial. But if $10 million or say $9 million would allow a company to that extra maybe penny per share in earnings, well, that's a material result. While it may not be a material amount in the overall audit, uh, it may be material in terms of what it allows that company to have good news for the public markets and so you know in this case you could certainly paint a picture and and project that that may have been the case here where they set up maybe some uh, shell company with some extra revenue and therefore extra cash early on hope that they could get out of that eventually but the uh, you know the the public uh, demand for for better results every year uh, they just continue to perpetrate that type of a fraud, setting up more and more shell companies and keeping these quote assets, uh, in this case uh, cash, offshore and in, in some sort of a shell facility that uh, gave enough cover story that, that didn't raise the early suspicions for the auditors.
0: So, uh, have you run into situations that are similar to this in terms of some of those cash, like cash assets stashed in? foreign jurisdictions and if so how have you handled the kind of challenges associated with confirming those account balances
1: yeah great question uh, you know confirmation fraud really dates back a uh, hundred years at this point uh, the very first confirmation fraud was uh, the document is McKesson and Robbins way back in the 1920s and, and 30s and that that same fraud uh, technique where you inflate revenue and have the offsetting journal entry to cash receivables and then therefore circumvent the auditor's confirmation procedures is the same fraud that we see, unfortunately, that I've seen over and over and over again. So as I mentioned, HellSouth, while it had a couple, you know, I think two, two and a half billion dollars of, of fraud, 400 million was fake revenue and therefore 400 million of, of fake cash. But we've seen it really in so fraud. Anytime you see a company where they have inflated revenue, because the offsetting all- journal entries should go to either cash or receivables, typically in those inflated revenue scenarios, or where cash is missing, significant material amounts of cash are missing, the way the, the company got away with that was by circumventing the auditor's confirmation procedures. And so we've seen that here in the United States with the Peregrine Financial Group fraud, where the CEO of that business sold, stole $200 million over a 20-year period. The, the big one now that we're talking about obviously is Wirecard with $2 billion in missing cash, but the Parmalat fraud, uh, they had $4.9 billion of fake cash um, in the Olympus fraud, which was in, in Parmalat was Europe's largest fraud ever. Parmal, uh, Olympus was Japan's largest fraud ever. It was a confirmation fraud. Satyam was India's largest fraud ever. Again, another bank, confirm, or a, a, a receivable confirmation fraud, but circumvented the auditor's confirmation procedures there. About half the reverse Chinese merger frauds in the 2009 dealt with inflated revenue and, and uh, uh, phony confirmation procedures. And so we continue to see it over and over. More recently, we've seen Luck and Coffee, which inflated a third of their revenue, over $300 million of fake revenue. You look at NMC Health, uh, which is a Middle Eastern company. Um, and so Tall Education, another Chinese company. The facts are all still coming out. Some of the more recent ones, but it appears at, at the forefront at this point that inflating revenue with by circumventing the auditor's confirmation procedures are are really what the technique was used to commit fraud in each of these cases.
0: Right, and you know, you talk about these massive frauds with these huge losses. Uh, this does kind of fit in with the the data that we get. Consistently on our report to the nations that we put out every two years, in that survey, uh, we have financial statement fraud as the most expensive average loss by far. Uh, you know, well above corruption and and asset misappropriation. Uh, in our most recent 2020 report to the nations, uh, based on our survey results, the average loss in financial statement fraud was just under a million dollars and so you know when you're when you're talking about company balance sheets and and everything it these these schemes or the losses tend to get a lot bigger than just your you know kind of average fare of frauds
1: and 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 then the really what ends up happening is certainly with the public company frauds and, and even with a lot of the, the private company frauds we have Private investors uh, or lenders. Um, what ends up happening is they're the ones that really take the biggest hit. So in the case of Wirecard, what we've seen is an estimate of over twenty billion dollars in total investment in loan losses uh, because of the two billion dollars of fake revenue and, and fake cash. And you know the company's gone into insolvency, which is Germany's version of bankruptcy. And you know the stock typically tanks. The Investors lose billions of dollars of uh, of money lent, and sometimes they get pennies on the dollar back. And so the the true financial damage, even beyond the specific fraud amount that was manipulated, there are the investor and in debt losses that, that everybody else ends up incurring because of that fraud.
0: Yeah, so it's often a, a bigger deal than it just looks on the surface. So getting a little more into the audit side of this specific case, uh, one, of the, one of the kind of ramifications from this scandal is there's been a lot of scrutiny on the audit partners uh, of Wirecard. And that the main one is Ernst & Young or EY and a German affiliate of EY was Wirecard's auditor ever since 2008 after they had to conduct a special audit in response to allegations of financial statement deficiencies well in that engagement they ended up signing off on everything and saying there weren't any major issues and after that they got hired by wirecard to be their regular auditor and they signed off on all of wirecard's statements right up until june 2020 of this year, when this whole thing kind of blew open. Specifically, EY is receiving some scrutiny because they signed off on Wirecard financial statements from 2016 to 2018, which featured some of the same arrangements and trustee accounts that are rearing their ugly heads for the company today. And so Brian, can you talk a little bit about from basically the reporting that's come out, what it, why EY would have signed off on on those arrangements from 2016 to 2018, for instance, what they might have missed, or what what kind of uh, verification methods they they might have used?
1: Uh, sure. You know it, you know when you look at the wire card fraud specifically and what the Rs did, you know, a lot of that information will still be forthcoming, and we get new and updated information as as we've talked about um, you know almost every day right now in Wire But as you look at at the fraud technique that was used, typically, you know i can I can illustrate that with how other companies did it, or particularly what I see in confirmation fraud. And what typically happens is you have revenue but you can't, as an owner, you can't touch revenue, right? The only thing you can touch is that you can see that the cash was either by the, by the customer or that it's owed as a valid receivable. And so that's where for a hundred years we've been sending confirmation requests, mailing them. And then more recently we started using things like fax and email and phone calls. But the way the fraud happens is really pretty simple. Um, what happens is, unfortunately, and it's, it's going to sound more simple than it really, is, than than people would believe. But really, it's very simple. The auditor comes in and says, "Where should I send the confirmations?" And so Mason, if you're my my customer, I say, "Hey Mason, where where do I need to send these confirmations?" And you're like, "Brian, send them to this mailing address." And believe it or not, the auditors just universally do not check mailing addresses, and so they mail the confirmation. Russell Weisendorf provided a PO box that he said was U.S. Bank, which it was not. And he controlled that that PO box and they mailed the confirmation there for 20 years in a row. Um, with Parmalat fraud, they provided a, a fax number that they said was Bank of America's fax number. In fact, it was a fax number for the law firm that Parmalat had hired. And when the law firm got the fax confirmation, they didn't really understand or know what it was. And so the executives at Parmalat had said, we'll just give it to us every year that it comes in. They did. The executives would fill it out and in fact it back to the auditors and so it's it's really a very simple technique and it's all predicated on the fact that the auditors favorite friend is you know favorite auditor is Sally which we jokingly call it it just stands for same as last year and a fraudster counts on an auditor doing the same procedure year in and year out even though we've been told since what we called SAS 99 and we're supposed to have a brainstorming session and to alter the nature timing and extent of our audit procedures it's ironic, but ninety nine percent out of the time we haven't we don't alter anything in the, in the course of an audit. and that's what the fraudsters look to take advantage of. They test the system and then if they can get away with it, they continue to perpetrate the fraud. And so I've always said the, the way I would test the system before I've you know inflated any revenue is if I had say five banks that I had accounts in and Mason, you were my auditor and you came in and said, Brian, where do we send the confirmations this year? I'll give you four mailing addresses that are legitimate, and for the fifth one, maybe for Pinnacle Bank, I give you my sister's lake house. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't inflated revenue. And nine times out of ten, what's going to happen is you're going to go and you're going to mail those confirmations to those five mailing addresses. But in the one case where maybe out of a hundred where you check that mailing address and you tell your senior that hey Brian or you know hey it looks like Brian may have given me a residential mailing address here. Well, if you come into my office, you and the senior, and you say, Brian, you, know, you, you, you gave Mason this, these five addresses, but one of them appears to be a residential one. It doesn't seem to be the banks. I'm going to go, oh, you know what? You're right, Mason. I was writing my sister a birthday card the other day. Must have had that on my mind. I wrote down her, her mailing address instead of the banks. Let's look up Pinnacle Bank's mailing address together online, and then you know everything's good. And that way, I know that that's a, a test, but it's not going to work right, but I haven't stolen or inflated revenue, but 99 times out of 100, if not more, you're going to mail that confirmation. And while I haven't stolen or inflated my revenue that year, the next year what happens is I inflate my revenue, I book the offsetting journal entry for cash to that Pinnacle Bank account, and when the new staff auditor intern comes in and they say, Brian, where do we mail the confirmation letters? I'm going to say, well, just send them to where Mason sent them last year. And the new staff auditor is thinking to themselves, well, goodness, Mason's still employed. He didn't get fired last year. If I send it to the same five mailing addresses, how can I get fired? How can I go wrong? And that's how these frauds are perpetrated for 20 years in the case of Peregrine Financial Group, 10 years in the case of Parmalat. It was just, hey, just send it to the same fax number they sent it to last year. And Sally becomes the friend of the auditor, same as last year. And again, that's what the the fraudsters count on. It is really very simple.
0: It's uh, it's it's pretty crazy to think that something with the uh, the magnitude of impacts like, what you know, twenty billion dollars worth of losses and bad loans and all that was essentially all tied down to the same tactic as if I gave a prospective employer my roommate's phone number and said <laughs> that they were my boss at my last job.
1: And and you know, it, it's really that simple. Um, you look at the you look at Kmart in the United States. Right. Kmart went bankrupt on inflated revenue and in a phony confirmation scheme. And what they did there was they thought that maybe the auditor might actually check the mailing address or check that, that somebody was an employee of the company. And so okay, I'll give you an example of what they did. So in the, the way we see it happen is either the auditor comes in and I if, if I'm the fraudster, I provide you with a mailing address, fax number, email, phone number, whatever that I control. That's what we saw happen to Parmalat. That's what we saw happen to Peregrine Financial Group. Um, and that may be what happened here at Wirecard. Um, we don't yet know, I think that's still to come out. But the other way it happens is if I, if I think and I'm nervous that the auditor may check the mailing address or the identity of somebody at the other end, then what I do is I bribe or coerce somebody, a conspirator on the other side. And so what Kmart did in one case, they went to the national director of sales for Coca-Cola, David, uh, a guy named David Kirkpatrick, and they guaranteed him uh, a certain number of cases of Coca-Cola sales. And what that did is that allowed David to hit his annual target, his annual, and then, therefore he got his annual bonus. And so that was actually and effectively a bribe. On the other hand, they went to a, a gentleman at, uh, at, at uh, Fujifilm and, or no, I'm sorry, it was Eastman Kodak. And they said to him, hey, we want you to fill this out and tell the our auditors, fill it out, say that you owe us more money than you do, because they were paying these companies pay for product placement at Kmart. And this gentleman was was um, not as comfortable with that. And they said, Well, here's the deal. If you don't fill that out, right now we gave you, your company, the in the vial and checkout counter display location, which is a prime location. Um, we're going to give that to your largest competitor at Fujifilm and you'll lose the account. And since that was this gentleman's largest account, he signed those confirmations for the next two years. And so in this case, they used the stick uh, instead of the carrot. So they either bribe or coerce somebody, and that's so how they did it there. Uh, they had, they allowed the auditors to send a confirmation to three different banks in this case and say each of them had a billion dollar CD on deposit. Well, that those. CDs were guaranteeing loans at third parties that were really shell companies that were set up to create phony revenue back to Olympus to inflate its revenue and meet earnings expectations. Well, what happened was when the auditors sent the confirmation letters to those bank employees, those individual relationship managers had been coerced by the threat of the loss of those significant deposits on account at their bank. And Olympus said, look, if you don't, if we want you to confirm the information with the auditors and tell them that the CDs and the amounts are here, but we don't want you to tell them that those CDs are guaranteeing massive loans at these third parties. And because of that material uh, information that was not told to the auditors, they never knew those third parties uh, effectively that that Olympus was funding their own revenue through those shell companies. And so, therefore, that was a material uh, piece of information the auditors never were able to find out. And those those individual bank employees had been coerced with the threat that they would lose Olympus's business and those. The significant cash deposits. So, we see that technique either through uh, effectively a, uh, the carrot or the stick—a bribe or the threat of the loss of business of some sort.
0: Just, just sprinkle in a dash of extortion into your fraud scheme, then.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it's just it's it's too easy. And the and the same technique that McKesson and Robbins used back in the 1920s and 30s—that was literally they they controlled the mailing addresses. And uh, the order in that case mailed the confirmations up to Canada. Um, The addresses were controlled just like the Peregrine Financial Group fraud by uh, the McKesson and Robbins team. Um, Funny enough, since McKesson and Robbins was in the United States, they thought a step ahead. And so they had these secretaries who just, they were the only employee of each of these fake companies. They would receive at that time, the orders were sending semi-annual confirmations. So they'd receive these semi-annual confirmations. They'd mail them back to the executives at McKesson and Robin in the United States. The, the executives would fill it out with the balances they wanted to show. Then they would mail the confirmations back out to the ladies in Canada so that when they put them in the in the post, they were postmarked from Canada just in case the auditors got suspicious and th- thought to themselves, why did I mail it to Canada and yet a postmark comes back to the United States? So they were, they were again, thinking a step ahead of the auditors in that case. And so it's, it's a very simple fraud. Well, so is there...
0: Is there a simple fix for such a simple fraud? Is there something that audit firms or individual auditors can be doing to kind of mitigate the risk of being fed bogus confirmation details or to, you know, kind of verify what they're being told without the risk of the manipulation from the source?
1: There is. And that was really the, the reason why I created confirmation.com, you know, 20 years ago in June, uh, really just 20 years ago last month is when I, I founded the business. And and it was really exactly for this fraud um, because I saw when I worked at each of the, the two big four firms that I worked for as a young staff auditor, I could circumvent two of the big four's auditing procedures and I could commit financial fraud if I was intent to do so. And I thought to myself, you know, Wow, if if I'm thinking of this and I wasn't really trying to commit fraud, I wonder if if companies who were trying to commit fraud have used this technique and and realized the the huge gaping hole in the audit procedures. And as I did my research, that was exactly what I uncovered: is that fraud after fraud after fraud, where revenue had been inflated, that they had manipulated the auditors' confirmation procedures. And and I knew that, you know, I I love my profession. I love what CPAs do. I love what uh, you know CFEs do as well. Both very important and honorable professions. And what I I knew was if I could go in there and we could create, and at the time it's funny to say this, but you know they had this newfangled thing called the internet that was only about three years old. And I said, if we could create a clearing out, this secure clearinghouse, where we could go in and pull the data and, and validate that the data was legitimate, that it was coming from legitimate sources, say the banks, then the auditors collectively could rely on that. If I went out there and did it well enough that I would trust it, then why can't I do that once and do it for all the accounting firms out there? And so that's what, what I started 20 years ago. And I started with one bank and one accounting firm in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we just sold last summer, I uh, sold the business to Thompson Reuters. And, and, and we when we sold, we had users in over 170 countries. Well, we've got 16,000 accounting firms globally that use us. We've got over 5,000 banks and bank departments that use us. And uh you know in the United States, we've got uh, entities like the uh, National Futures Association that caught the Paragon Financial Group fraud, and the uh the Federal Reserve Bank is one of our users the s e c so we've had you know had significant success in what we've been able to accomplish and really change the industry
0: do you think uh do you think that because of this wire card scandal, there will be more of these audit confirmation frauds involving third-party payment processors. Do you think this is just the first of numerous, almost identical scandals that will be kind of discovered as a result of this?
1: Certainly could be. It wouldn't surprise me if we don't see more of that in the payment space, but really confirmation fraud um, and inflating revenue is it crosses jurisdictions. it crosses industries. Um, and so it's it's really a, a technique that said you've I've given examples of where it's been seen kind of in countries all over the world and in different industries. and And yet, what I think we're starting to see, the reason you see the 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 education, the patisserie valerie, the uh, you know the wire card, uh, the luck and coffee fraud, the NMC health what's happening, obviously as we know is there's been a significant downturn in, in the global economy. And it's really the same thing that I saw in 2009, 10 and 11, and that I saw in the, the 2000, 2001, 2002 timeframe. Anytime you see it where the, the economy contracts and cash and debt resources and facilities kind of uh, are more difficult to come by, those, those fraudsters who have been perpetrating multi-year frauds, it's more difficult for them to continue their effective pyramid scheme when those those financial resources tighten up. And so it won't surprise me, and, and we'll probably continue to see more and more frauds come out over the next 12 to 18, even 24 months, uh, until the economy really starts to take off again. And again, it's because those fraudsters won't have the cash and debt facilities available to them to continue to perpetrate those frauds. And that's a lot of times when those bonding-type schemes uh, get uncovered.
0: With regards to the actual confirmation fraud and what what actually happened with this wire card fraud and especially given the fact that it's it's not exactly a closed case at this point uh, are there any really big questions about the wire card fraud that you have that you're going to be keeping a close eye on to to get an answer to
1: certainly uh, the ones that that i'll I'll certainly be paying attention to are questions like, you know, were there individual bank employees who participated in this fraud? I know that the executives of, of the banks have have waived the confirmations that that were purported to have come from their banks. And they said, like, these are clearly, we didn't do these, but the question still remains, did those confirmations, did they get sent to people who did not work at the bank and that maybe Wirecard or one of their conspirators uh, controlled or did the, did the confirmations go to somebody at the bank who had been bribed or coerced into responding with false information, right? So the, the, the actual technique there will be interesting to, to see and, and figure out what, what comes out from that. I think, um, you know, as, as all this uncovers, it wouldn't surprise me the, uh, the fraud growing and growing. Uh, a lot of times what you find initially is the tip of the iceberg and as you begin to, to really investigate and look at the fraud, you know what what I see over, over many frauds and what I know the the the, the fraud examiner see as well as these fraudsters they get greedy they get confident abilities to fool the auditors and so they'll they'll commit more and more fraud thinking that they can continue to get away with it. So as we continue to investigate fraud, it'll it'll also be interesting to see what other fraud and fraud techniques they employed and what other information or whether financial information comes out as, as being fraudulent and phony uh, as the details of this wire card fraud come out.
0: So on that note, uh, I think we're kind of running out of out of uh, time here, To but to wrap it up, do you th- is there anything else important about the wire card scandal that that you think fraud examiners should know? Any good kind of moral of the story to, to tie a bow onto this? Yeah,
1: I, I think the main thing is we've got to reevaluate audit procedures. We understand how these frauds happen. Uh, my mom and and brother were both police officers. And uh, when my brother and I were growing up, we'd, we'd run around the backyard wearing my mom's police uniform on our bikes, you know, chasing the invisible bad guys. And he became a police officer. And and I uh, you know, started Confirmation.com, and I always tell everybody it's my way to help help the good guys catch the bad guys. But one of the things that a lot of CPAs and ask me when I stand up and talk about how these frauds happen or how I would create a fake website or a fake bank website, how I would commit confirmation fraud, a lot of times people ask me, well, why are you telling people how to do this? And I think the takeaway is if we don't start getting serious about how fraud happens and understanding how it happens, how can we expect our staff auditors and our staff to identify these frauds and catch them. So I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're doing a good job of explaining these frauds, looking at them in detail, showing our staff how they happen. And, and then when we do that, we can have a higher expectation that maybe our staff can actually help us catch these, these type of frauds. Because if you go in and don't know how they happen, then how can you do a very good job of anticipating how you're gonna alter the nature, time and the extent of your audit to address fraud risks if you don't even understand how the frauds typically take place in the first place. So to me, I think education's key. I think from a, an auditor standpoint, um, I'm, I'm concerned for the profession that if we don't get better at finding fraud, that, uh, that, that accounting firms will lose our exclusive right to do audits. We saw that taken away uh, in the tax space effectively, right? When the IRS said that anybody can do taxes, so that opened up the door to all the H&R blocks of the world with just you know, low-cost staff or to the intuits of the world with TurboTax. My concern today is globally, if we continue to fall down on the job and fail to catch these materials, that the, the regulators, the, the government, the investing community is going to revolt and say that we're not very good at the job. What really does an audit provide if it's not helping to identify these material frauds that result in significant investor losses? And I think historically, we've got a lot, in the, a lot of folks in the profession who said finding fraud wasn't our responsibility. But I've always asked the question when I speak at conferences, please you know, raise your hand and tell me if you or know of a firm that have ever been sued for being inefficient. And everybody kind of laughs and looks around and I have run into a single accounting firm who's been sued for being inefficient. But then I asked the question, please raise your hand if you know if you or a firm you know has ever been sued for missing a financial fraud. And I say, you don't even have to raise your hand because you all would raise your hand. And, and until we get serious about why we're getting sued and, and improve our art procedures, we're gonna con- continue to miss frauds like this wire card fraud and the luck and coffees of the world. And and that's my concern that, uh, you know, as the, and I've said, you know, the folks who don't think finding fraud is part of our responsibility, it's time for them to retire and and move on. Um, because there are others in our profession who who wanna maintain the honorability of what what we do as a profession, and and I think that's one of our our key key jobs these days. Excel and Microsoft do a great job of adding up columns of numbers, and, uh, you know, finding fraud is a significant component of what we need to be doing these days.
0: Well, hopefully all this excellent information and perspective that you've given us here on the podcast today, as well as your company, Confirmation.com, will, you know, hopefully this goes at least some ways towards helping cpas and cfes understand more about how this specific fraud occurred and tools that they can use to prevent being involved in a similar fraud
1: yeah no and and thank you mason for the opportunity to talk today uh really enjoy uh, being able to talk with you and, and kind of address and look at at the issues that our professions are facing today so thank you very much
0: yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Everybody, that's Brian Fox with Thompson Reuters and confirmation.com. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Fraud Talk on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. This is Mason Wilder signing off. And thanks again for joining us.